0: thank you so much Sarah and uh, let me add a welcome uh, to the one you've already had we really are looking forward to being with you in person next week but we're so glad that you're also online with us today Um, about 50 years ago there was an important experiment a famous experiment called the stanford marshmallow experiment you probably know about it Uh, it was a study on delayed gratification a young child was offered a choice between one small but immediate reward, say a piece of marshmallow, or two, if they were able to wait for a time while the, uh, the psychologist left the room. Um, I recently came across a cartoon that built on this experiment to talk about the frustrations of eating avocado. The psychologist says to his subject, I'm going to leave you alone with this avocado, and you can either eat it right away and have an underripe avocado or wait a little while and have a completely rotten avocado. Uh, don't get me wrong I love avocados although I have often thought to myself over the last few months they really are a terrible uh, pandemic fruit because in order to buy a good one you've got to kind of pick them all up and squeeze them and that's probably not the best practice at the moment. But you see with avocados timing is everything and Uh, Over the course of the last term, we've been learning from John's gospel that in the ministry of Jesus, timing is everything. So all the way back in chapter 2, Jesus' mother asked him to help out at a wedding that had run out of wine, but he replied, dear woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And then in chapter 7 and again in chapter 8, people twice tried to seize Jesus, but Both times John tells us that they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. But then last week it all changed up on us and we heard Jesus finally declare, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. And he was talking, of course, about the climactic events of his mission on earth not just his resurrection and then his return to his father in heaven but especially of the event that must precede those two things which is his being lifted up in death upon the cross and so the long slow build-up through the first half of john's gospel is now over at last the hour has come although in terms of the actual narrative those significant climactic events won't actually take place until jesus is arrested at the start of chapter 18 and so what happens between the end of chapter 12 and the start of chapter 18. well we get a little clue in chapter 12 verse 36 which tells us that when he had finished speaking jesus left and hid himself from them in other words jesus public ministry is now concluded Uh, No more miraculous signs, no more public teaching in the temple courts or up around Galilee, no more disputes with the Jewish leaders. That public ministry is now concluded. Jesus withdraws. From here to the start of chapter 18, it is all private ministry, just Jesus and his 12 key disciples, which by the end of our passage today will be just 11 disciples. And so these are his final instructions When they are all alone together on the night before he died, this is him preparing them for what will happen next. Once he leaves them and returns to his heavenly father, once he's no longer with them. And of course, that is our situation today, isn't it? What was still in the future for them is for us, all that we have ever known, called to live faithfully as disciples of Jesus when he is no longer with us physically but in heaven at his Father's side. And so these chapters really are some of the most precious words that we hear from Jesus anywhere in the Gospels, uh, really addressing disciples in the very situation that we live every day. And they are a perfect training ground for us then as we come out of lockdown and we prepare to to come back to all the in-person ministries that we've missed for so long, Um, please will you pray in the days and weeks ahead for all of us as we listen to these chapters from john's gospel this term that god would use these chapters richly to produce in us an abundant fruit of godliness Uh, but back to the issue of timing we can actually see in the first three verses of the chapter just how carefully john has signaled for us The significance of this moment he's really just loaded one piece of important information on top of another and so verse 1 it was just before the Passover festival Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas the son of Simon Iscariot to betray Jesus jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from god and was returning to god in terms of an introduction this is absolutely next level isn't it in fact i think we're hard pressed to find anything quite like it anywhere else in the gospels which set things up for us with quite the same degree of kind of historical and theological precision Uh, connecting us not only to things that have happened elsewhere in this gospel but even all the way back into the story of israel in the old testament because remember timing is everything and this is the hour for which jesus came so with everything so carefully set up for us what does jesus do verse 4 he got up from the meal Took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin. He began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It is hard to find words that convey just what an astonishing moment this must have been. Now, this is not the usual way of things between a rabbi and his disciples. Normally, they would serve him, not the other way around. Uh, even then, though, they wouldn't normally be expected to do anything as menial as washing his feet. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the TV show, uh, Dirty Jobs, hosted by Mike Rowe, although I hasten to add, not our Mike Rowe. Um, it really, the name of the show says it all, uh, And if it had existed in the ancient world, I'm almost certain that foot washing would have had its own episode. Uh, It was certainly a job that needed doing, but only by the lowliest of slaves. And so it makes perfect sense in verse 6 that when Jesus gets to Peter, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? It's phrased as a question, but clearly it's not. And surely we must say that Peter's instincts are right on the money. There is something grossly inappropriate here in what Jesus is attempting to do. And yet he says to Peter in verse 7, you do not realise now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Uh, which i think is really the clearest clue that john could have recorded for us to show that the foot washing is not ultimately about the foot washing but a symbolic pre-enactment of what jesus will accomplish by his death on the cross truly peter doesn't yet understand what is happening though he he comes back at jesus much more strongly in verse 8 no you shall never wash my feet to which jesus answered unless i wash you you have no part with me which again is a bit melodramatic if jesus is just talking about washing peter's feet but makes perfect sense once we understand that it is actually about him dying on the cross Because do you remember what John the Baptist cried out about Jesus when he first saw him back in John chapter 1? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's just who Jesus is and what he came to do. And therefore, as Jesus says to Peter, it's only by his death on the cross that Peter, or anyone for that matter, can be washed clean from sin and have a part with him. We may be the most religiously devoted person going around. We may come to church every Christmas and Easter, even every week, if the mood really takes us. We can be law-abiding and morally conservative. We can be a pillar of our community as far as the public is concerned. But, friends, unless Jesus has washed us by his blood shed on the cross, we remain stained with sin and we have no part with him. On the flip side, though, we may have lived a deeply rebellious life. Morally corrupt and living for self at every point, we may have things in our past about which we are deeply ashamed and filled with guilt. But the moment we come to Jesus, who shed his blood for us when he died on the cross then we are washed clean from our sins completely. And we have a precious part with him, our Lord and Saviour. From one of the songs that we often sing, Stained by sin, to you I cry, wash me, Saviour, or I die. See, Jesus died on the cross is just a simple statement of historical fact. Jesus died on the cross for me. There is the faith that saves and that knows what it is like to be washed clean from sin. But Peter at this point is still lost in the woods and so he swings really to the other extreme in verse 9 then Lord not just my feet but my hands and my head as well to which Jesus replies those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet their whole body is clean in other words once it is clear that the foot washing is just a symbolic pre-enactment of what Jesus will accomplish when he dies on the cross So it also becomes clear that the foot washing is all that Jesus needs to do. He doesn't need to wash Peter's hands and head, that would be to misunderstand the symbolism. And so we put it all together and we actually come away with a wonderfully rich picture of the comprehensive nature of Jesus' death on the cross. It is necessary, verse 8, we can't do without it. But it is also sufficient. Verse 10 we mustn't go beyond it. Our dear brothers and sisters, both individually and together as a church family, may we always hold on to the cross of Christ as the only means of our salvation. And as we go out into the world each week as Christ's soldiers and servants, may may we only hold on to the cross of Christ as the one hope for men and women, children and youth everywhere who will remain stained by sin unless they are washed by Jesus. We proclaim him. But may we always hold on to the cross of Christ as the exact standard of our love for one another. Because that's actually where Jesus goes next, isn't it? In verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Again, this is very striking, isn't it? After the lavish devotion that we saw from Mary last week, when she poured that expensive perfume onto Jesus' feet and then washed his, wiped his feet with her hair, perhaps you know that's the kind of direction we would expect him to go right now that he would give that kind of application that we must now wash his feet just as he has washed ours but no, what jesus does instead is direct us towards each other towards each other as fellow disciples of jesus because that's what the one another language means in in verse 14 just as it does everywhere in the new testament this is the the language of fellow believers in christ if we are disciples of jesus we are to love fellow believers in the same manner of the love that he has shown to us which is humble self-crucifying service humble self-crucifying service we are to put our own preferences below our concern for meeting the needs of a brother or sister in Christ. We are to rank our own comfort, even our own security perhaps, lower than the priority we place on the good of our fellow believers. As we try to chart our way back from four months of lockdown. On those weekends where we try to weigh up whether or not we should come to church and meet with the saints. Or those midweek mornings or evenings when Bible study comes around and we face the same choice. Jesus calls us to take whatever action will see us, as it were, get up from the meal, take off our outer clothing, wrap a towel around our waist, pour water into a bowl and then wash the feet of our brothers and sisters. Now, I certainly don't mean to imply that us washing each other's feet is simply about attending church or Bible study. Of course, it is so much more, but it could not be less, could it? To be a disciple of Jesus is, in effect, to be a slave to others for Jesus' sake. In this passage... In particular, it is to be a slave towards our fellow believers, for Jesus' sake. And I'm going to go out on a little limb here, because it's always possible that someone will bring to my attention a passage that I've missed. But I don't think the New Testament ever applies the loving, sacrificial death of Jesus as a model for how we are to love the people of this world but it is used constantly as a model for loving fellow believers Uh, it's not that we're not to love the people of this world we we are we're to love our neighbor as ourselves but this pattern of humble self-crucifying service is reserved to teach us about how we are to love one another and it starts here in john 13 as jesus washes his disciples feet And friends, we actually need to let this sink into our hearts and sink into our minds because its implications are so profound and so far-reaching. And the more we sink into it, the more we will find ourselves and the quality of our fellowship to be completely transformed. I do, at this point, though, want us to consider a really important pastoral question, especially perhaps at the moment, which is, what if we have completely flubbed it? What if we look back and say over this last term of lockdown, we just know that this isn't the quality of love that we have been showing to our fellow brothers and sisters here at church? That could be a really painful thing for us to face up to, couldn't it? Now, of course, at one level, we should just take it as a given. Uh, This side of Jesus' return, none of us is ever going to live this out perfectly in the way that Jesus lived it out perfectly. And although, from my vantage point, I get to see and hear amazing stories of how members of our church family continue to love each other, even at significant personal cost and significant sacrifice, I also get to see and hear stories of how we fail. And I include myself in this. How we fail to love each other in the manner that Jesus commands. What shall we do with that? Most importantly, we need to remember that verses 4 to 11 come before verses 12 to 17. What I mean by that is the great canopy that stretches out kind of an umbrella really across all our failures to love one another in the manner Jesus commands is the unfailing love that jesus has shown to us to the end he loved them to the end he loved us the unfailing love that jesus has established by his death on the cross to wash us clean from sin and so we rest secure and clean at the cross and at the foot of the cross under the arms of our loving saviour And so we can bring our failures to him in faith without fear that he will turn us aside. But then with his arms still stretched out above us, at the foot of the cross, with God's help, we set out again to copy and imitate Christ. And so we rest at the foot of the cross and we serve from the foot of the cross. And it takes courage and determination to live this way, to love each other like this, won't happen by accident. It's a commitment that we make. It takes courage and determination, but only the kind of courage and determination that are really just other words for faith. Trusting that anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life, and as Foxy's already drawing our attention to, we heard those words from Jesus last week. Friends, I wonder what this might look like for us in the days and weeks ahead. I wonder what phone calls it might prompt or what cards or letters or emails it might elicit or what meals it might imply or what conversations and catch-ups it might cause to take place and, and what kind of morning teas it might motivate as we begin to meet together again. Jesus said, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet i've set you an example that you should do as i have done for you well i know our time is nearly up but i do want to finish very briefly by looking at one last narrative thread that runs through the passage and uh, the reason I, I want to look at it is because i think it's so important and the reason i think it's so important is because it goes right to the heart. Of whether or not we can trust everything that john has just told us about the foot washing we've been looking at it has to do with jesus's betrayal by judas acting under the influence of satan Uh, did you notice how much this came up in the passage as Catherine read it for us before it's mentioned first of all in verse two then again in verses 10 to 11 it comes up once more in verse 18 Where it really becomes the dominant issue all the way through to the end at verse 30 and judas leaves and is not seen again until chapter 18. but do you see the potential problem that this narrative issue creates when it is set alongside the foot washing that we've just been thinking about because what really went on in these last 24 hours leading up to jesus death was this really his loving self-sacrifice for the salvation of his people or is that just a gloss that john has put on the story and what really happened is that jesus was a victim of circumstance betrayed by a friend he thought he could trust Uh, to put it another way who really controls the flow of history here is it jesus or judas or even satan given that he is the one who leads judas astray do you see the issue But friends, John has written this all so carefully for us, just as Jesus explained it all, so carefully for the disciples so that we might be in no doubt about what was going on here and who was really in control. I mean, Yes, Jesus was betrayed by Judas and it was a terrible act by a man who for three years got to see more closely than most the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And yes, Judas did act under the influence of Satan, for Satan opposes God's rule at every point, and therefore he is certainly against God's ruler. But you see, through it all, the flow of history is controlled, not by Judas, not by Satan, but by Jesus. In fact, not for a single moment does he relinquish his control over what is happening here. And that's why he said what he said in verse 10, that the disciples were clean, although not every one of them, because he wanted to indicate that he already knew what was about to take place. It's why he quoted the Old Testament in verse 18 about the one who has shared his bread, who turned against him to indicate that what Judas was about to do had always been in the plan and purpose of God. It's why he explained to them in verse 19 that he was telling them all about this before it happened so that later on they would look back and they would understand. It's why he said so plainly in verse 21 that one of them was going to betray him. In fact, in verse 26, he even revealed which one it would be by dipping some bread and giving it to him directly in full view of them all which just makes us realise how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ for his enemies. Because he included Judas in this dinner and he washed Judas's feet and would any of us treat our enemies in such a manner? But this is the astonishing love of Christ. Most remarkably of all, I think, In verse 27, Jesus himself gives the command and sets the wheels in motion for what Judas is going to do. And so his betrayal is real. There's no play acting here. The one who shared Jesus' bread really did turn against him. And truly the opposition of Satan is the underlying conflict that makes sense of everything that's going on here. But, friends, the great truth that overrules both of those things is that even here, when his hour had come, in the moment of his betrayal, on the eve of his death, not for an instant did Jesus ever relinquish his power and authority. He is the Christ, the Messiah. And no one takes his life From him rather in the humble loving service of a foot washing slave for us he lays it down of his own accord let's pray Heavenly Father we are stained by sin and so we cry out to you and to your son to wash us and we're thankful that his death has achieved everything necessary for that to happen help us to love one another in the same manner amen